0: yeah yeah so we're, we're do that wrath we're do that <laughs> wrath uh, one way that it was put I thought very well was by Leon Morris in his commentary. Uh, he says this wrath is the settled and active opposition of god's holy nature to everything that is evil, His settled and active opposition so I thought that's, that that was such good imagery that that he is actively doing this and he's opposition to to evil itself but it's not this rampage that that he's out of control of but it's settled that he has a settled opposition to evil because often we think of wrath and I think about maybe my wrath towards the, the cat or the animal that gets in my way and uh, does you know something like messes on the carpet and it raises my wrath right and that's probably not the best uh, way to think about God's wrath is it Now, our wrath and God's wrath is very different. God's wrath is not a loss of self-control, but, as we heard earlier, righteous indignation is a way to put it. Righteous indignation. Uh, His wrath is personal. Uh, That should be pointed out here, especially in our time, that God's wrath is a personal opposition to sin. Um, And God's wrath is both future and present tense. It is being revealed. So in this, in this passage, we see the verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the question you might have as you read this, is Paul saying that that wrath is revealed right now? Or is that wrath revealed in the future? What do you think? Right now? Uh, I hear Presbyterians saying yes. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> Now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So really it's 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 a both, isn't it? That God's wrath is revealed both now and later. And we can see that in the book of Romans. Then we see we'll see in this passage uh, the present tense that the the words here are present tense, that is being revealed, that this wrath is being revealed now in chapter one is what Paul's getting at. But also we'll see in chapter 2 and other parts that this wrath is obviously something that is coming in a fullness later on in the future as well. So it's a both and. It's a both revealed now and in the future. Um, So a question for us as we think about God's wrath and what it is. How do you think Christians, we maybe, and also culture at large, how do do we misunderstand God's wrath? How do we, and culture at large, often misunderstand God's wrath?
1: Since it's delayed, it's not going to
0: happen. Okay, yeah. I don't necessarily see it right now. Therefore, it's not going to happen. Yeah.
1: you think it's only for the really bad people, like Stalin and Hitler and Jeffrey common ordinary regular sinners like
0: you and Yeah 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 Um I think the common thought is that, you know, I'm generally a good person that we're generally most people are good, but we have those few those few who are just exceptionally bad that that really that's what God's wrath is for God's wrath is only found in the Old
1: Testament, it's not for the Testament. in the New Testament. Wow, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's often a thought, isn't it? That We're tempted to think, and culture is tempted to think, even if you believe in a God, that that was the God of the Old Testament, that he's, he's different now somehow. Yeah, yeah. Kind of working backwards there.
1: <laughs> I found that uh, some people also think that God's wrath is unjust. I guess the people are punishing them to send somebody to death to do life.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's very, very common. Yeah, that's very, very common. Um, and what, what would be our answer to that? To someone who says that, you know, how could a God send someone to hell who's lived a basically good life? Maybe they, you know, lied a few times, or what, what would we say to that? You don't understand the
1: holiness of God. They just don't understand the rules. You know,
0: God's rules on the highway. Right. Yeah.
1: I think that shows. Of the half of the, the entire yeah. Well, even if someone was born and has not sinned, they're still guilty by by means of Adam's representation
0: of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Because uh, usually people will think that well, you you know, sin isn't sin until you do something yourself that is sinful. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I
1: would say we sin because we are sinful.
0: Yep. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I, you know, what? at the end of the day, is as we were saying that this gets at, that we, we don't know God. We don't understand how holy He is, how righteous He is, how much He deserves of, of our uh, obedience and how far we are from that obedience that He requires. Um, and so really, it's a failure to understand who God is and what He is owed. So now as we... Uh, Oh, one last thing I will point out is wrath the opposite of love.
1: <laughs> no,
0: no, right? Why not? Wrath is not the opposite of love. I just, I'm,
1: there, yeah, his his attributes are in perfect harmony. Number one, but there there is a, a an idea out there that that somehow in hell, hell is the absence. That's not true. It's, it's actually the fullness of God's presence and his just wrath judgment. And honestly, it goes back to Mark's point about His holiness. We, we seem to think that God's supreme love is us, and that's not true. God's supreme love is Himself, mm-hmm. His own glory, His own... Having His holiness... Um, be held. Like that, that's his supreme love. Yeah. But so, isn't
0: that selfish? Isn't that selfish of God?
1: But he he's God. He's, he's God. He's the divine creator of the universe. He
0: does yeah. all things for
1: his own
0: glory. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, exactly. So this this is what some of the students heard last week. That what is God most concerned with? God is most concerned with his own glory, right? And that to our ears sounds super selfish. Like Wait, why, why? that can't be right. God can't be most concerned with himself. Well, that is selfish for me and you, right? Because we're not perfect holy beings. We aren't the creator of the universe. But if God was concerned with anything else besides his own glory, he would be inconsistent with his own character because he would not be acknowledging who he is. And so God must be concerned at the end of the day with his glory. And that is what we are to be concerned with as well. Um, so I think we went a little roundabout way to get back to... <laughs> that wrath is not the opposite of love. Hatred is the opposite of love. And wrath here, at like, you know, the, the definition, is a settled and active opposition of God to all things that are opposed to himself. Evil, sin, all things opposed to himself. So now we move on to the section two. So we've seen the revelation of God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed against all sin and all unrighteousness. Um, and next we will see that uh, the truth about God is shown forth and there is a reason for God's wrath. You see that God's wrath is against those who suppress the truth, that was in the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that word is a word that it means to to seek to hinder something, to unsuccessfully seek to hinder something, or to hold it down, to suppress something, to suppress the truth. And there's an implication there. If you're suppressing the truth, what is implied by you suppressing the truth.
1: That you know the
0: truth. That you know the truth. You can't suppress something that you don't already have. So what you know, Paul is implying here and assuming is that everyone has the truth, but in unrighteousness it is suppressed. And that we suppress it. And I think the imagery we, we've used often here, and I think Van Til and others have, have used it, is the idea of trying to hold down... Um, like a ball that's full of air and trying to hold that down under the water. And you know that as you push down on it and you let go, it's going to pop back up. It's just going to pop back up. And you try to shove it down again, and it's slippery, and it's going to pop back up. And so this image of we're trying to suppress this truth, we're trying to hold it down. um, But yet, we can't successfully do it. We can't successfully do it. And so Paul implies that all men know this truth. But what truth are we talking about? What truth is Paul talking about? What truth is being held down? What truth do we suppress in unrighteousness? Any thoughts? Any ideas?
1: Already existence of God.
0: Yeah, the existence of God. That's one way to put it. Any other thoughts?
1: Creator God, uh, God who saves. Yeah. God only God, especially this
0: time period. Yeah, when polytheism.
1: acknowledge that
0: a God. Yeah. So really, we see here that there are there are probably and it's there in your outline two different ways to understand the truth here. We have what we're seeing taught here is natural revelation as opposed to special revelation, okay? Natural and special revelation. So we would say that natural revelation are those things that we can simply just see that everyone knows and understands simply from being in the world and in God's creation, that we just know these things. And the way that the passage says it, I'll read verse 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they and we are without excuse. We are without excuse. And so this is very, very clear teaching here for what we would call natural revelation, that the things that can be known about God and his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived. To everyone, that everyone knows that there is a God. And this natural revelation, as you see in your outline, we will say it's limited in its scope. It cannot mediate salvation, and it only gives enough knowledge to condemn us. It only gives enough knowledge to condemn us. Um, we see that natural revelation can only show us that there is a God, that there is a creator, but it cannot actually give us saving knowledge. It cannot actually show us what we need to know or what needs to happen in order to be saved. It only shows us enough to be condemned. It's limited. Whereas special revelation is God's direct acts of speaking and showing forth in in the scriptures his divine work and word. And so special revelation is the only way by which we may have salvation and to know the saving knowledge of Christ we see that special revelation and natural revelation uh, differ in these respects. So, if this is uh, taught in Romans, natural revelation, that all men everywhere um, know that there is a God because it's clearly seen. There are a few implications uh, for some different aspects that I've listed here. Those are apologetics, evangelism, and epistemology. And so just as talking points for us, if natural revelation is taught here, what, how does that impact our apologetics and how we um, seek to share the gospel and, and come into contact with other worldviews and religions? How does this teaching in Romans on natural revelation affect that?
1: Well, one can't argue
0: Yeah, definitely. Well put. Yeah. So we see that in, in the world, as often the case is, what about, you know, what about the, the person in the middle of the jungle who's never heard the gospel? How are, how are they at fault? How can they be condemned if it's not their fault they haven't heard the gospel? And we see that you know, here that the text of Scripture teaches that all men are condemned because all men know. All men, at the end of the day, God's given sufficient reason for us to see that there is a God, and that he is holy, and he is to be worshipped. And I think that this is obvious, That if you just look at history, there's never been a found, a people group, or a person in any part of the world that did not worship and bow down to something, something. Whether it be a rock or a tree, people have at all times and all places worshipped something, because we know, we know that there is a God, but we don't seek to worship the true God Um, and we are we are condemned in, in in that sense so it affects our apologetics and our evangelism any other thoughts about how this how does this affect our evangelism when we're we're talking with people just here in America to know that that there is such a thing as natural revelation and different viewpoints Yeah, specifically if you're dealing with people like in America and we have the understanding of natural revelation, I think I'm thinking a lot of like the more that we've seen atheism, which is probably actually, you know, diminishing. There's fewer and fewer atheists. Um, But how do we deal with people like that when we talk about natural revelation, that things are clear? Because I think an atheist will, will say, well, it's not clear. You know, I can't, you know, the world... Is, is very disorganized, they might say, the Big Bang Theory, you know, just the, the different atheistic thoughts, thought processes out there.
1: The gospel with them. Mm, yeah. So and and for me it's with no apology. I mean you can say it with a smile and try to drop your voice, but sometimes I can't do that. But I'm passionate about that because when you think about the fact that whoever's standing in front of you is gonna spend an eternity in hell, mm. that just breaks my heart. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a very, very good point, that the <laughs> love is a factor there, is it not? Love is a factor there, and sometimes the truth is hard, yeah.
1: And to your question, you not. You don't have to show them that God exists. You have to break down their existence to them knowing that God
0: exists. Yeah, so I think this is this is getting at a, a, a direction I wanted to go. Um, is when you talk to people, when you talk to the atheists, there has to be, you're coming from a position somewhere. You're coming from a position somewhere. And so do you try to enter their uh, realm, their sphere, their philosophy, and argue with them within that? Or do we stand within our own framework, our Christian biblical framework? How How do you communicate with people about the gospel? And this gets into... What I have there, the word epistemology, and that's just a big word for how do you come to know anything, it's a study of knowledge. How do you come to know anything? And really in our society, especially in, in schools, students in college, that uh, epistemology and your ability to know anything is, is, is attacked. And it, it's, you know, we see it in postmodernism, just the idea that, you know, I just heard a middle schooler, uh, not one of our students here, a middle schooler the other day, Just, you know, without any formal training, practically just give the postmodern view on life just like that. Just like, well, you know, what's true for you is is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. And that kind of of thought, like, I don't even know exactly where you pick it up or where they pick it up. But it's like it's floating and getting into the back of our thinking, right? And that it's really illogical. It's really illogical for what's true for you to be true for you. And what's true for me to be true for me? Because what if I think that that the sky is, or that the world is, is flat, and you're telling me, well, science has proved it's not flat. And said, so, well, it's true for me because it's in my brain. It it, it all falls apart. It's illogical. We'll talk about that more. Um, but really, epistemology is important right now, and uh, I think Van Til. Some of us have talked about Van Til before. Um, he's really helpful in keeping it simple. the the Christian perspective that you can't walk you can't try to get outside of our perspective and enter some unbiased arena to argue with people that the Christian must come and so we say that this the Bible teaches all men know God therefore you can just tell them about this God and you can assume that they they know you don't have to prove the existence of God first you don't have to necessarily get around all these different things but if you present them with the clear teaching of Scripture. It works, that God is going to use it and use it by his spirit, that we come to people not trying to argue on their grounds, but we have no foundation there. But we do have a foundation in the Christian faith and what we believe. Um, so the discussion question I have here, is it possible to have knowledge apart from God? Can we have any knowledge apart from God? No, well, who, were you created by God? Yes. Who gave you a brain? God did. So as a Christian, the perspective is very simply that any knowledge that we have comes from God in the first place. So as Van Til says, to, to deny God is to sit in, the, it's like a child sitting in, the, in God's lap and slapping him in the face and saying, you don't exist. It's not the exact quote, but Van Til says something along this lines, that we sit in God's face and we slap him using his own knee to sit upon and his own strength to hold us up in order to do it. Um, so that we are using the, the very power God gave us to slap Him in the face. There is no knowledge apart um, from God. So, can a Christian engage other viewpoints objectively without a Christian without a Christian bias? Is it possible not to be biased?
1: Objectively, I don't think
0: so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? So I think at the end of the day, what we realize is it's impossible not to be biased.
1: We can also use that bias to show their repression of truth. That we can show them, they say, well, what, how, is, how can God be good at it? Well, what is good? You're using the Christian worldview of right. the truth.
0: yeah good point because it, it, at the end of the day all of it is 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 stolen knowledge and information <laughs> so I, I, it, we would say that you know you really can't <coughs> argue without without a bias at all there, There's no one that's purely objective, which is what you know a lot of times intellectually someone might want to think or I want to think that I can come at something like completely objectively without any bias, and that's actually pretty pretty prideful and pretty silly, is it not? That it it's impossibly completely unbiased. And so what what we, I think, can see from Scripture and natural revelation is that we are meant to have this biased knowledge coming from a starting point of God and His creation of all things. And that all things are um, made by Him and that's obvious to all people. And that's a that's a good bias to have because what... What's the bias of anybody else, whether it be if they're from another religion or from uh, an atheistic point of view? What's their bias? What's their starting point? Because everyone has one, right? The atheist, their bias is that, well, I believe there is no God, <laughs> and that takes a lot of faith too. But we won't get into that. <laughs> it's David, to
1: think about a quick example of that is tolerance. Yeah. Tolerance a day is preached. There's tolerance unless you're a Christian. Then there's
0: no tolerance. Right. Yeah. We have no tolerance for those who are intolerant. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the crisis of authority we find in our world? What is the crisis of authority? Yeah.
1: Sorry. Yeah. They're just of the ask
0: Yeah. Most people will agree that there's right,
1: right and wrong, but when you ask them to just to decide, then it can be a Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who's who's the
0: who's the ultimate authority? I
1: think we see it in uh, phrases like my body, my chest.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: yeah and the main conflict seems to be between subjective epistemologies and uh, revelational epistemologies. Because there's never an issue with two postmodernists that disagree with each other. Because there's gonna live and live. But heaven forbid you actually come and say, No, you you are wrong and this is why, like no. If you're if you're if you believe in revelational epistemology that there's an objective truth that's been given to us is the, the
0: greatest that you can have today. Yeah. It really is so the only place you can have some solid ground, right? I think that with the deterioration um, that we see of of there being an absolute authority, that you see the deterioration in um, like, you know, kids today and uh, even adults and having a foundation to, to think from and to operate out of. It leaves you floating, like if you know if, if it's just you are the final authority in all things and what you think. That's such an unhealthy mental place to be, right? <laughs> you just you know you have no grounding. But the scriptures give us a God who is great, and that He has given a foundation from which to, to operate out of, and it's Himself that we're meant to glorify Him that we're meant to live for Him to obey His word. Um, it gives us structure that we are meant for. Otherwise, uh, we're aimless and floating and have no no object and have no direction. So now let's let's move on uh, to the third section, the longest section, which are the results of God's wrath. The results. So we've seen the revelation, we've seen the reason and now we'll see the results. Chapter and verse 23, we start to see that idolatry comes on the scenes, and it says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then, therefore, therefore, and I've always heard it said, uh, what is the therefore, therefore, is a the question you should always ask. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their impu- hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So we're gonna see here three times in this section that there is the they exchanged and then it says God gave them over. That happens three times. You see it in your outline. Um, they exchanged, therefore God gave them over. They exchanged and because of this, God gave them over. Their women exchanged, God gave them over. And so we see this happening throughout the passage. And really this is the, the outworking of God's wrath against, against sin. And Paul focuses on two main kinds of sin here, uh, commentators point out, is the sin of idolatry and that of sexual immorality, sexual perversion. Those are the two main things we see pointed out. And really we can see that there is a connection between those, that as they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, as they were idolizing the creature rather than the creator, and worshiping the creature rather than creator. Out of that, one of the ultimate, you know, fruits that come out of that is this sexual perversion. And Paul says that three times that they they exchanged this truth about God, and in turn God gave them over to the sexual perversion. So we see that connection between idolatry here and the fruit of sexual perversion. And this is uh, common actually in outside sources from the Bible and Jewish uh, writing. Commentators will. We'll notice that Paul's writing here is, is very similar to the wisdom of Solomon in, tr- in chapter 12 through 14. Uh, very similar. To, uh, Paul would have known that literature. And probably that would have just been part of you know, his thinking. And when he was writing scripture, that's there. Um, this connection between uh, the pagans and idolatry and sexual perversion. Um, that was well known in the ancient world. Um, so what kinds of connections do we see even now? where we see that idolatry and the sexual perversion are connected. How do we see that happening today?
1: I think we made idols of ourselves, and so we seek pleasure in whatever way that we want, and that leads to all sorts of
0: yeah, the idolization of self.
1: Yeah. And he, I'd, say, I'd argue hedonism is, is a natural direction of postmodernism, right? So if, if God is not defining what is right and what is wrong, um, what is good for you and what is bad for you, and it's left to the self, and hedonism is, is just a logical conclusion, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm
1: wondering, do you understand what effect that's really showing on you? Let alone the TV shows and what they're explicitly showing. Even if you say, well, I just asked Laura to do that. Then you got the commercials to
0: deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that you know we see a clear connection between the society's idolatry and sexual perversion. We've seen it in that in history, in the Greeks, um, it was well known that their sexual perversions and homosexual tendencies, and their rejection of you know a monotheistic god. Um, it we see it today as our as our nation has more and more you know as we have accepted. Uh, Atheistic thinking and pluralistic thinking, that the sexual perversion has just gotten more and more to now where, you know, any document for medical or political or uh, governmental stuff, you you know, what gender are you? I've got five, six options. You know, how in the world did that happen? That is, is, it's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? It's hard to wrap your mind around. You're either male or female. (laughs) It's pretty clear. Uh, I don't know how you get other options in there. But that's what sin does, does it not? And thinking they were wise, they became fools. And thinking we are wise, we become fools. So uh, some, and I, I know we got to wrap up here. I'm running out of time. But some contemporary commentators will say that a homosexual person is acting in accord with their nature to have same-sex relationships. And they'll, they'll say that out of Romans 1. They'll say that here it says that it's uh, against nature. Is what it's talking about, and they'll define nature because it says in verse 26, for those that are contrary to nature, and they'll define that nature as well. Some people's nature is homosexual, and some people's nature is heterosexual. And if that's your nature and you operate outside of it, then that's sin. So, how do we, as as believers, how do we uh, talk to that kind of thinking? And it really probably comes down to right. What are what is the text talking about when it says nature? <laughs> and these are questions that you come up, you come across.
1: Your current state nature is a and so not perspective, yes, but in creation by
0: nature, we're not sinners, and so it's in contrary to that creation or that nature. Right. And so what, what commentators and you know if you study the text, it should be clear is that the nature being talked about here is the creational order, the the creational order that God has created, the, the nature of things that He's made male and female to operate together in the heterosexual relationship. And so that's taking the context and, and twisting it. And you, know, you, see this, you see this happen. I saw it happen. I remember a good friend in, uh, in college that he was getting into the very philosophical side of, of understanding scripture and interpretation. He started to question Romans 1. Um, and it was funny how not long afterwards, we found out that he had you know, met someone and was sleeping around. And just eventually, uh, he left the faith completely and you see that those, those, those two things do just go in hand as we reject the truth, that it leads into the practical fruit um, that the scriptures talk about. Uh, very sad that that, that that does happen so often. So um, we see here that, that God does not initiate a sin that was not already present. So we're not saying here, and this passage isn't saying that, that God cursed them with a sin that they wouldn't have had anyway. It's, it's there, we're sinful, it's already there, but God gave them over to it. Um, idolatry, we see clearly in verse 28, it affects our thinking because people did not approve God in their thinking. God has given them over to minds incapable of approving what is good. Um, they have sought to stand over God and judge him, and so God has judged them for that by giving them over and giving them over to approve what is not right. And Paul reminds us that all sin results from this idolatry. We see in the end of the chapter a long list of, of sins, social sins, that none of us can really walk away from without being condemned by. Um, that this passage show Paul works to show that all humanity is deserving of the wrath of God. That no one is no one is exempt. All humanity is deserving of the wrath of God. And part of that is just simply from the fact that there is his invisible attributes in the world that condemn us, that we have not acknowledged him. Um, and so we, uh, we won't look at this last discussion question. Um, you can think about that and, and, and talk about it on your own time. Um, but we see that we are just, Paul has set us up to move into the gospel by showing us where humanity is and where we are in sin and the wrath it is deserving, and the gospel is the good news that he's going to march towards is the answer to all that has, been, that has been undone by sin. So let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for the time to study your word. We pray that you'd help us understand it and to um, be able to, to share the truth with others and to understand the truth ourselves. Guard us, we pray, from the sin of idolatry that even we in the church are, are so prone to um, cause us to, to love your word and to have it dwell richly within us. Be with us now as we go to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.